Welcome to Molecular Diagnostics, an eye toward the future, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientist Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Thermo Fisher Scientific, a world leader in serving science. Their mission is to enable customers to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer. Whether their customers are accelerating life sciences research, solving complex analytical challenges, or increasing productivity in their laboratories, Thermo Fisher Scientific is here to support them. Scientists continuously develop new assays to fill unmet diagnostic needs. While methods such as quantitative PCR have emerged as essential tools in molecular diagnostics, scientists developing and administering these assays still must overcome technical challenges. In this podcast series, the Scientist Creative Services team talks to experts in assay development about their experience designing and implementing assays and protocols for future molecular diagnostics. In this episode, Nikki Spahich from the Scientist Creative Services team spoke with Anne Wiley, a research scientist in epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health, about the development of Saliva Direct, a quantitative PCR protocol authorized by the FDA under an emergency use authorization that detects SARS-CoV-2 in saliva. Dr. Wiley, thank you for joining me today. I'm very interested to learn more about how you and your research team developed Saliva Direct, a reverse transcription quantitative polymerase chain reaction, or RT-qPCR protocol, for analyzing SARS-CoV-2 from saliva. What inspired you to develop this test? Very early on, we saw firsthand all the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic response, and so many of them revolved around nasopharyngeal swab. With the worldwide demand for those swabs, you know, we saw the collapse in the supply chains. We were seeing healthcare workers being hesitant to collect additional samples for research. People were experiencing testing aversion once they'd had a swab and recognizing that it's not the most comfortable sample type out there. So having worked with saliva previously, I wondered whether saliva could help us overcome many of these challenges. You can reliably self-collect your own saliva, so you don't need the healthcare worker to take it. It can overcome that testing aversion, much more pleasant sample type to collect. and The fact that we could just use very simple laboratory plastic tubes to collect the sample versus the more highly specialized nasopharyngeal swabs that were very hard to get during that time. You're no stranger to the idea of saliva tests. In fact, you started your career working on analyzing the bacterium Streptococcus pneumoniae in saliva. What were your first steps in developing the saliva-based PCR protocol for SARS-CoV-2? Fortunately, the team that I was working with was very supportive of this left field idea. And we just decided that we would start building up a data set of swabs versus saliva. By the end of April, we already had quite a robust data set showing that in most cases, saliva was actually performing better than the nasopharyngeal swab. So we then wanted to really increase access to testing. During that time, testing wasn't broadly available. Those who were symptomatic could get tested. But otherwise, it was those who could afford to get tested and could access testing. We recognized that if we could remove some of the more costly steps of the process. And I'd seen a paper where they'd taken nasal swabs and tested the swabs almost directly in PCR. The results weren't overly promising, but it was still something. And so I was just sitting up PCR one evening and decided to see what would happen if we just tested saliva directly setting up the PCR, putting in RNA templates that we're using from RNA extraction, some leftover samples from the day, just put them straight on the PCR. Half of them failed, but half of them worked. 
we then spent a lot of time in the lab working to sort of optimize the protocol to make sure that we could test for the virus as sensitively as if we did the full RNA extraction process. So how does the test that you ultimately optimized work? The saliva direct test is incredibly simple. It has been described as a high school biology protocol. So you take a saliva sample, you just collect some saliva in your mouth, you draw it into a tube and you can either heat that sample a little bit for a period of time that can help inactivate any virus or anything else that's in there to make the sample safer to handle and can also make it easier to get. Otherwise, you can work with the raw sample in a biosafety cabinet. You add proteinase K and then we just heat the sample for five minutes at 95 degrees Celsius and that inactivates the proteinase K, which means that we can put it then into qPCR. So it's just making up your qPCR, putting in your primers and probes for the different viruses or genes that you're wanting to target, and then you just run that in qPCR. Developing a new test is rarely straightforward. Did you experience any challenges when first developing this for SARS-CoV-2? The largest challenge was that we were originally working with saliva from very ill patients hospitalized with COVID-19. These were samples that could be very mucousy. They could be, unfortunately, incredibly bloody. As we went down the test development route, we soon identified that what would cause inhibition with the PCR are white blood cells. They are mucus. We didn't fully understand that at the start. And we were like, why aren't these samples actually working? And well, they did have these inhibitors that we weren't aware of at that time. So that took us just a little while to sort of work around and helped us really develop our collection instructions for good saliva samples. Saliva Direct has an emergency use authorization and EUA from the FDA. How has that affected the reach of this protocol? We wanted this test to be available to labs all around the country. We couldn't quite tell how that actually fit within the FDA regulatory framework because we weren't actually making anything. We weren't distributing anything. We didn't want to be financially implicated in this at all. We just wanted to make the protocol publicly available. So we wanted labs to be able to use the protocol by the reagents for the test directly from the suppliers. And the FDA were actually incredibly collaborative. We received our emergency use authorization on August 15th, 2020 for saliva, I think the most unique EUA that the FDA has issued. So since then, we've worked to distribute this protocol and we've so far designated over 200 labs throughout 42 states around the country. And I think over about 8.5 million tests have been run. So what was the EUA process like, and what evidence did you need to compile? We had to compare saliva to nasopharyngeal swab. So we had to have paired samples, nasopharyngeal swab and a saliva sample from individuals who had tested positive or negative for SARS-CoV-2 with that nasopharyngeal swab. That nasopharyngeal swab had to be run on a previously authorized test for SARS-CoV-2. And then we also ran the saliva sample on that same test. We also ran that saliva sample through Saliva Direct. So we actually tested the saliva twice. We've also performed usability studies to show that people can reliably self-collect their own saliva samples, either in an unsupervised situation or in the at-home setting, where they then package their own sample back up and send it back to the lab. We've had to do things like interference studies. White blood cells, mucus can interfere with a test, but we've also found that certain toothpastes can as well. It feeds into how you design your collection instructions and how you let people know that they really need to follow the instructions very closely so that they don't get a false result. 
the FDA has been really great. There's great templates online so you can actually go in and see what you need to do and what data you need to provide. They've been very open to sitting down and discussing that plan with you to make sure that what you're planning is sufficient. But they've also been very good at letting us know when the plan is maybe over the top. I know that it means a lot to you and your team that this qPCR protocol is accessible to labs around the world. So you have validated the method with many different reagents and instruments in bridging studies, which test changes to the original assay. Did you have to tweak your protocol to have it work in these different situations? What's been remarkable is that we have kept the same PCR protocol on all the different PCR instruments. Protocol started with about three different PCR instruments and reagents from just a couple of suppliers with this idea that we didn't want labs to be having to buy new instrumentation to run the test if they bought a new PCR instrument that cost would just be passed off over to the patients. We also wanted to have reagents from a variety of suppliers because we wanted to create redundancy in the supply chains or perhaps even the fact that laboratories have preferred suppliers that they work with. Then chances are they might also get a better price with that supplier. So it could really help just to keep prices down. As we have continued to roll saliva direct out around the country, if a lab comes to us and says, hey, we've got this PCR instrument, it's not on your protocol, can it be added? We have sent out bridging kits to them. They send the data back to us. We send that data to the FDA. We've been able to add well over 25 different formats of PCR instruments on our protocol now. Again, just to be able to labs utilizing what they have rather than having to yeah, either not test or go out and buy something new. How well does the Saliva Direct protocol work in PCR tests for other pathogens? What it's seeming is that if you've got a respiratory pathogen, and you've got a PCR test for it, you could very easily sub in saliva as a sample type into existing PCR tests. We haven't broadly evaluated this yet, but we're seeing really promising results for the likes of influenza, RSV. We were very fortunate to receive a handful of samples of MPOX-positive individuals and found that Saliva Direct works to detect MPOX virus in saliva. We're testing it on Streptococcus pneumoniae. We're also going to be looking into other oral bacteria as well. So it's still early days, but the results that we have so far are promising. It's such a low-cost, simple sample type to collect that if people are conducting any swab-based studies at present, it's so easy to add a saliva-based sample. So what is next for you and Saliva Direct? Where it's going now is that we are starting a non-profit. We will be submitting for full 510k for Saliva Direct. We're being based within the Yale School of Public Health, but as an academic center, you know, Yale's not set up to be a sponsor of an in vitro diagnostic assay. So the Saliva Direct nonprofit to house the 510K itself. The Saliva Direct team will continue to sort of collaborate between labs, institutions, see what else can be done in terms of saliva-based developments where we could potentially be using saliva as a more accessible and low-cost sample type. Well, thank you, Dr. Wiley, for speaking with me today. My final question for you is, do you have any tips for scientists developing their own infectious disease PCR test? My biggest tip would actually be to look at what's already been done. Look at what's been successful. MPH students that we've been working with pulled together an incredible review of saliva tests, for example, that have been tried, implemented, and actually been successful all around the world. There's been so many tests assessed, many that have failed and many that have succeeded, that Knowing which ones have succeeded means that you could take that protocol and either implement that or build upon it rather than just starting from scratch and having that potentially fail. 
you can guarantee your success sooner, more smoothly, more cost-effectively. I mean, I think it's going to benefit everyone involved. Thank you for listening to Molecular Diagnostics and Eye Toward the Future. And thanks again to Anne Wiley, Research Scientist in Epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. In the next episode, we'll talk to Fernando Biles and Gloria Lamb, industry experts from Thermo Fisher Scientific, about innovative qPCR software designed to streamline molecular diagnostics. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts.